But it's it's interesting re-listening to it uh, this morning. It struck me that it's it's uh, it's obviously it's a collaborative record. We'll get on to that later. But it's also the first record which is which is them really as individuals. It's like the precursor of the White Album, actually. That their individual styles are so obvious. The first three tracks are Taxman, Eleanor Rigby, and I'm Only Sleeping, which are so different, aren't they? Yeah, it's well. I you know I have a great privileged position where I get to go to Abbey Road and they give me the tapes and I get to play around with these albums and and then i then i sit down with paul um and play on the mixes and the first thing he said to me you're so right was this is our most individual record this this is the way where we found sort of found ourselves and, and you know they went on holiday for the first time in their lives they went on holiday um <laughs> and it could indulge themselves they meant to be doing a film the film got cancelled they went on holiday and they'd also reject you against become they'd this sort of four-headed monster with a suit, a beetle suit on, which was beetle mania. Welcome to this week's one was Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm John Stone. And John, you know, we, we all wish you the best. We all know you're going through some hard times, but thankfully, we've got our copies of Revolver this week. Yes. Good day, sunshine. <laughs> Joining us, well, we're going to have kind of a roundtable for this week and next. Uh, some of our bestest of the bestest. Uh, first, our co-host Emeritus. You heard him last week. He's here again. Lonnie Pena. Hey, Lonnie. Hi there, I'm back. Thanks for having me back, Ed. John. And then we have the queen of all Beatles media and the other wordle woman who's annoying you every day, Kid O'Toole. Hey, Kid. <laughs> hey, Ed. John and Lonnie, great to be with you guys again. By the time you're listening to this, you'll either have your copies of Revolver or almost have your copies of Revolver. Or salivating. So they're coming. Although we don't have our physical packages yet, we have seen copies, uh, you know, we've seen the same videos that you guys have on the internet, the unboxing videos and such, and we know the quality that they have put into these projects. It looks gorgeous. Yeah, I have to agree with you, Ed. It's just amazing. I cannot wait. I bought both packages, the CD package and uh, the LP vinyl so uh i'm uh, anticipating having those arrive soon and they should be here by the time of this broadcast 
Well, hopefully. I mean, the Amazon folks are saying for some people it's going to be as late as like early to mid-November. Oh, really? Hopefully not. Yeah, I mean, I haven't gotten a delay from the place that Kit and I ordered from. Right. The people who've ordered from Amazon have gotten notice, expect it by early to mid-November. Although, of course, Amazon is always conservative on those things. With the Let It Be box, they also put like a three-week delay, and it ended up being four to five days. I think they hedged their bets. But yeah, I agree with what you were saying, Lonnie, that from what I've seen, and hopefully by the time this airs, we will have all gotten our physical copies. I ordered the CD set, and I think it's going to be just like the other uh, sets. I mean, it looks like it's it's going to be a first-class job, as it should be. And any album warrants... The first class royal treatment, it's this one, and definitely looks like it does not disappoint. And the book, which I'm sure we'll be talking about, mm-hmm. is really special as well. So separate from the music, you know, our separate discussions on this, I think the biggest thing we've learned is never trust Paul McCartney's memory. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> what have we learned? Number one, we've learned we can believe Giles Martin. There's now pretty much a... 97, 98% chance that that's Paul playing bass on She Said, She Said. Yeah, I would think so. It sounds like it could be. I mean, you hear his voice, but you don't know what tracks got put down at what time and whose voice shows up where at what track. The demo is probably done by the time that Paul had walked out, by the time he had his fight. And you have all of them playing on it at the same time. And Darren Murphy has confirmed to me that, yes, indeed, that is the same bass line as the final bass. So Mm-hmm. It's not George playing it. It sure sounds like Paul's style. Yeah, it does. To me, that's a giveaway. And then second, since we've heard of this John Lennon demo for Yellow Submarine, people have gone back. And if you look at the 66 and 67 interviews, John and Paul both say, oh, that was a song that John had part of and I had part of, and we put them together. Well, that's what they did. But John, when I was talking to you earlier, before we started recording, you said it was in effect written as two separate songs. Yeah, I seem to remember like, the submarine, the chorus bit you're coming in with. Yeah. And wasn't the other bit something that was all that I had already going? Yeah, right. Yeah, it was one of the things, you know, to make it into... Yeah, sometime in the mid 1970s paul started coming up with the current version of the story which is oh well you know it, it was all my song and then i came up with it during that nice little time when you're falling asleep and you're in that little sort of dreamland i was lying in bed you know when you're just drifting off and you've got that sort of five or ten minutes before you actually go it's a nice little the world uh, I like that it actually sends me to sleep thinking of songs it's good I give yourself a little task and uh, somehow I got this idea of submarines and sort of children's idea yellow submarine and there were going to be blue ones and green ones and everything but it all just came down to this yellow one and I got a very simple duh, 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 duh. just thought of in bed and thought it'd be nice for a children's song I don't think John Lennon even said much about Yellow Submarine in the Playboy interview other than, yeah, maybe that's another piece of Paul's garbage. His favorite line right. when he didn't want to talk about something. Yeah, Paul probably thought, well, you know, it's just what I think. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I blame that one on us for believing Paul all these years when, well, they contemporaneous interviews, they said what the real truth was pretty much. Yeah, that's right. You know, we've got to go with that. 
And now we have the evidence. John and I will talk about those demos when we get to them. We can talk generally about them since obviously Kit and Lonnie won't be with us for the two weeks following when we go and do a deep dive on the demos. Do you have any general thoughts on what you've heard? I haven't been able to listen to them in depth yet. I'm not going to say too much because I'm still working through the set. But I will say, well, first of all, there is some stuff, of course, that we already have from Anthology, but they've done a great job of cleaning it up. And some of it's extended from the Anthology stuff, which I really appreciate. So it's not exactly the same. Hello? Hello? Okay. then they've also done some monkeying around with it like the she said she said demo you've got john's talking before and then there was that whole 45 seconds or so with the he said he said version and that has just disappeared yeah he said did he oh that's very nice indeed hello oh okay that's true and then of course the yellow submarine section hearing how that developed. And part of that, of course, is now available on YouTube. They uh, gave us a little uh, teaser uh, before the set's coming out. And I mean, to hear John's early version of it, boy, is it different. Oh, it, it definitely is. Holy cow, right? I mean, it's really dark. Very dark. <laughs> I mean, Wow. When you consider it's 1966 and the way his songwriting developed, very personal, that was not a pop song. That was a, a real personal lyric. No one cared. That could have easily been a sequel to Help. Yeah, good point. It's very Dylan-esque. And it's also very much the kind of demos that he would be doing for Plastic Ono. That is a really good point, Ed, because as I was listening to that, I thought this sounds like something that would go on the Plastic Ono Band. Very confessional, that kind of naked, both in in terms of revealing his innermost feelings and, of course, the, the production, because it was just a demo. But that's an excellent point. I mean, that is really a little sneak preview of what we would get. Absolutely. If you put that song on the Plastic Ono Band outtakes, nobody would have blinked an eye. You know, it would have been exactly in character with the rest of the music. But as it turns out, the contribution that Paul gave to it, he literally made the sad song better. Made it better. Oh, yeah, it made it better. Imagine if Paul and John would have been collaborating on Plastic Ono Band. (laughs) Everything would have been like <laughs> silly love songs, nineteen seventy. <laughs> oh my god, that would have been a very different album. <laughs> what it does is it answers that question that we've all had: 
what would have happened if they'd gone on and made another album and what would have happened to those songs? Well, they still would have been there, but they would have been very different songs. Very much. Yeah, but, you know, there was that conversation in Get Back when John is talking to Paul about how you'd always change the song. It was always your arrangement. And perhaps this was one of them that, you know, this was John's confessional song and Paul made it into Yellow Submarine. John allowed that to happen, though. Oh, absolutely. And and he said he did. Sure. So for better or for worse, but mostly it's for better. It's interesting how we all see everything through the lens of Get Back still. I mean, that just goes to show you how that documentary changed not only the way the Beatles present their own music to us. I mean, you know, Giles clearly is just having so much fun with this demixing technology. But the way we see the songs and the way we think about how they made the songs. And hopefully uh, we'll get some chatter like we had in Get Back with Paul McCartney leading the pack. And we get a little bit of that. I don't know what else we could possibly be getting out of that, though. There's not really a lot of that kind of dialogue, I don't think. Probably not Mm. too much. uh, It'd be interesting to hear a little bit of the dialogue before each song. The longest aside is between John and Paul when they're talking about, you know, Paul starts to sing yellow submarine and says no you should sing it because john kind of knew the meter and how it went against the chords and that's basically the extent of the dialogue you get yeah again i know you like get back a lot i watch that sometimes with mixed feelings thinking about all the artists all the other artists who could benefit from this kind of treatment well here to me is the true magic of those nine hours the creative process you see paul mccartney do that with you know, he goes to old Beatles songs and they cover it or he'll go to some old Tim Pan Alley. You know, he's very showbiz, Tim Pan Alley, Brill building. With John Lennon, he is straight up like every three seconds, he is either referencing Little Richard. He's saying wop, wop, blue, bop, la, bamboo, or he's referencing like Chuck Berry. The reason why that's super important for the world to see is because I know that the framing of what hip hop is like, well, that's not real music. They're just taking other music and claiming it as their own. But yo, dude, all that is what we just watched for those nine hours. That's hip hop. That's them using other songs to spark an idea for another song. All right. So let's move on to the book. I read through probably about three quarters of the book. I'm very happy with it. Yeah. Is more in-depth than the Pepper book or the Abbey Road book. Right. There's the whole background of what the Beatles were going through at that time. They were supposed to be filming, but it got canceled, and so they had a long break, and all of the different influences that were swirling around them. There's a narrative that is a major part of the book. And I agree. I think that was a very important essay to put in there because that really puts into perspective the creative environment they were working under. The fact that, as you said, about the the filming being canceled and then all of the different projects they're involved in and what they were immersing themselves in. I mean, this was a period of such intense creativity in, in many ways for them. I mean, obviously, George, with 
his Indian music and Paul getting more involved in art and listening more to avant-garde. They were experiencing all these different things. And, and I think that is such an important context to understand. And even how they were changing, I mean, their image was changing. We know all this, but I think it's important for others who may not know the whole story to understand, too, I mean, how they were moving on from the Beatlemania years, obviously. I mean, this was (laughs) the beginning of Beatles 2.0, as I call it. And that is so important to understand just how, no pun intended, revolutionary this album really was, not only sonically, but even in terms of their image. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. I mean, this was the transition period. When the album was released, let me see here, in August of 66, it's hard to believe just a few months later they would be uh, in back in the studio you know recording strawberry fills and then talk about the image change that we saw and that at least in America we saw an American bandstand the black and white promotional films and some people didn't like it they look weird <laughs> <laughs> that's why we have the monkeys <laughs> <laughs> they would not come out, though, until 67. No, they premiered in September of 66. I haven't had a chance to read through the book yet. I just skimmed through and saw the pictures. I didn't see any pictures I haven't seen before. There are a couple. There you are know, a couple in there. Really? But it, it uh, is a very good set of pictures as yeah. well. Yeah. There is a great piece written by Questlove. It's gorgeous. Yes. Isn't it great? I mean, I wrote down what he said. It was like, tax man might as well have been fuck the police. You know, <laughs> that, that, you know, having this big pop group complaining about the government was as revolutionary as that. And then he made the point that it was so impressive that the second song on the album, which was usually a filler because the first song was supposed to be kind of explosive and there it is. And then the second song was to let you catch your breath. But the second song was Eleanor Rigby. We got all these songs. The fact that they had, I think he said it was one of the biggest flexes. It was so impressive. I'm so glad you brought up Questlove's essay, John, because when the announcement came out, about the box set, and they were mentioning what was going to be included. And when they mentioned the book and mentioned that Questlove had contributed an essay, there were a few people on some of the Beatle groups on Facebook who complained about it and said, why is he in it? What does he have to do with this? I think his voice was very important to add to it, because first of all, I mean, he's an incredible Definitely. musician. Um, right. And, right. you know, he's a historian. He's certainly, I mean, it's proven to be a music historian. The most timeless drummers are the ones that are the most simple. And certainly his age is another important perspective, you know, about my age. And I think in his essay, he talked about how he got into the Beatles in a very different way. Yes. He described it as going backwards. Yeah. He got into it through soul artists performing Beatles songs. Yeah. Covers and sampling were the way that he describes his introduction into the world of the Beatles. Right. Yep, which I thought was fascinating. I mean, I think that's a really interesting perspective, and it really lends to his different perspective vision of the Beatles. And he even admitted in the essay it took him a little bit to really appreciate 
just how visionary and all they were. And so I thought it really went an important kind of view yeah. and a different way to look at the album that I think is important for bringing in younger people into the album to say, you know, this is why it's so important and a different cultural perspective. And also, so those who might be saying, who might be listening to this and saying, you know, why is Questlove in this? Read his essay. Yes. It is very important because it's urban. Yes. You know, all of us here doing these podcasts, we're white people. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, white-ish people, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> with, with the Mexican and the Asian on the show. But, uh, <laughs> I would say what? <laughs> I would say that we are not primarily urban types. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Quest kind of goes in there and he's talking to his people as much as he's talking right. to us. Right. You take that essay, you pull it out, you put it on the internet, and some you know younger kid who's more into stuff that we're not into would pick yeah. this up and go, oh, that's why this is important. That's why I want to listen to this record. I wrote down two quotes that I thought just kind of really hit me. And one was him talking about the breadth of their work. He says, you know, the Beatles just throw it out so casually. Oh, by the way, here's this life-changing track, too. No problem. Do you know how good you have to be to do that? Plus, it's such a contrast. When I hear Taxman, I envision them still in those black leather jackets from Hamburg. Then all of a sudden, these brothers are wearing tuxedos. (laughs) (laughs) Then he says, there's a soul part in Beatles songs that never goes away. And for me, it goes back to Paul. The bass always defines black songs. That's why for me, hip hop isn't purely authentic unless it has a low end frequency of the 808 or something to drive it. That's here in nearly every song. Paul's bass playing is neck and neck with Carol Kay for second place behind James Jamerson's crown. And Paul might well agree with that. Yeah. The 808 was a drum machine we used to very often for creating drum rhythms. It's not so much used anymore as a drum rhythm, but what the main thing that came out of it was the kick drum. The kick drum had such a distinct sound that we actually started using it today as bass sounds. So, so for example, this is a sampled 808 that I got. And let me just show you an example. Like, this is what it sounds like. Can you hear that? Let me, let me, if you're on headphones, I don't have headphones, it might be hard to hear. Let's raise it a little. Hear that? That's... So the original thing is that was the kick drum. This was the kick drum right here. This maybe a little lower, but it would use be used as a kick. So what happens is when you raise the release of the kick, it, it actually turns into this longer note, which we very commonly use as a bass. Hear that? Now what happens is you can actually pitch that bass and create a melodic pitched bass, which is what we use 808s as today. Hear the pitch changing? Now you can create an actual melody. You know, he will tell you, I'm playing bass the way I do because of James Jamerson. Right. Sure. It's not a competition. It's the impact that Paul's bass playing has on the sound of the band. And you can say that about all of them. I mean, Ringo's work on this album is extraordinary. It's really great. And then just a few weeks ago, we were talking about John Lennon's jukebox. You know, now you listen to it 
this record in this way, you can clearly see how all those, you know, the Stax records and the Motown and the 50s stuff that was in John's jukebox all filtered its way into Revolver. Absolutely. Pretty amazing that, you know, what influenced each of the Beatles, it's just like it goes in circles as we progress through the years from the 60s to the 70s, 70s to the 80s, how it's just going in circles. It's influencing folks who were influenced by other folks. That's the awesome thing about it, you know, their music. And them as people who were honest and open and that and that's kind of the beauty of the Beatles story to me is like, yes, they produced this incredibly beautiful rocking music. But as people they were influencing as well. And and I see revolver as the time when they really went from that pop band to you could see them as individuals george and his interest in indian music and john and psychedelics and paul and good day sunshine for no one kind of thing so they all became individuals at that point well but they were still the four-headed monster i mean you you talk about george you listen to the love you too demo that's another one that might as well be a Dellon demo. It's not Indian at all. As I was listening to it, thinking, well, George is doing the same thing John was doing Tomorrow Never Knows, and that it's all just one chord. And then there's a different section that the chord changes, but the whole chord of the melody is just one chord through the whole song. The Questlove essay, we're all in agreement. That's a tremendous piece of work by Quest, and it's a great piece of writing. We all want to write really great articles about music, and I think Quest has done that. It is worthy of being in this box. Do it at any time, Paul, cease to think of yourself as Beatle Paul McCartney? Yes. uh, I try to do that quite a bit, you know. Yeah. And when you're not being a Beatle, what sort of things interest you most? I like lots of things, you know. Um, I like music, yeah. just anyway. I like writing music. I mean, that's sort of almost even apart from the Beatles. Mind you, sure. we record everything that we write. So, yeah. But uh, I, I just like doing things like that, music. Mm. You've attracted a fair amount of uh, publicity of late by attending unusual sort of concerts and plays and things, haven't you? Yeah, it, well, it's funny that, you know, because I don't, it's a drag that it does attract that funny kind of publicity because, you know, the only reason I'm going is not the, the way people seem to think of it in the newspapers and things. I mean, the, in one of the newspapers they wrote up, I went to see this fellow who was just a composer and I'd heard some of his music and I'd sort of, and a bit of it was electronic, you know, and it was sort of quite interesting. It sounded all new and everything. Mm. You know? And I went along and then the papers sort of wrote it up. Uh, no wonder he was there, you know. It's, it was about electronic music, like sort of, you know. It was a drag, you know. Yes, yeah. Because you, that's the trouble, you get put into a pigeonhole. The thing is that, I'd, like any of the others, uh, I don't like doing nothing particularly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think all of us enjoy something, enjoy doing something that's enjoyable, you know, that's all there is to it, and it can be anything. You know, all kinds of music, for instance, there are millions of kinds of music I haven't listened to yet, you know, but I've heard few kinds, only sort of extracts of them, really. But I suddenly realised I like them, you know, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I always thought I didn't. And it's funny, you know, just suddenly realise that, yes, you think, that's quite good, you know. Yeah. But I wonder why I always turned that off when it came on the radio. Mm-hmm. You know, Indian music. Yeah. For instance, I mean, whenever you get on an Indian channel, you know, and you're fiddling through the radio, I always used to just turn it off. Mm-hmm. And George got this big sort of Indian kick. Mm-hmm. 
and he, he's dead keen on it, you know. And he's we've been around to his house a couple of times. And he plays you, and uh, so boring. <laughs> no, no, it's it's good, you know. Yeah. And you sort of hear millions of things in it that I never realised were in it, you know. And classical music, yeah. some classical music. What about sounds in general, uh, George? Do you, which way do you think we're heading? Just generally, you know, I think pop will progress so that every member of the group's doing his own bit. That is followed by an essay called The Road Revolver, which is kind of what we already talked a little bit about. It's, it's about what was going on and, and how they got to this point. Yeah. Going over this, I, I went across the part where George said that they would like to have Steve Cropper produce some tracks in Memphis. And I thought, well, I wonder what George Martin was thinking at that point. It really is is that the plan? <laughs> yep. And I've heard that story before about wanting to go to Muscle Shoals and all and I just thought, Wow, how cool would that have been? Oh yeah. Definitely. <laughs> I mean Yeah, Jim Stewart at Stacks. If only. I wish that could have happened. Do you, do you think that would have worked out? I think it would. I think it'd yeah. be a really probably more of a groovy feel to it than it was too far back <laughs> that they had cut that 12 bar original mm -hmm. <laughs> which is not groovy <laughs> yeah <laughs> you could see how they were kind of going for that muscle shoals kind of thing they didn't do it well because they're english <laughs> <laughs> when we get to the demos we, we can talk more about them but one of the things i got from listening to the demos collectively is in all the infinite universes there are lots of different versions of revolver and they are all, while substantially different, probably equally brilliant in their own ways. Yeah, you know, it's amazing in all the years that we've been collecting. I've been collecting since the early 70s. I know John has as well. And all the bootlegs that I've collected, they not much of this has been on. Right. Any bootlegs. I mean, it's just new. <laughs> Stuff I've never heard in my life. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, they comment in the book that there was a lot of stuff just sort of stuck on tape, wow. that a tape for one song would have five minutes, ten minutes, and they would just fill it up. And none of that got documented until they went and digitized all the tape and listened to everything. <laughs> incredible. That's where the second Yellow Submarine, the, the one with John and Paul together, came from. And it was just stuck on the back of a, a take of something else. Yeah, just what is this? Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, pretty incredible. <laughs> Yeah, that's quite a find. But nothing leaked. Nothing leaked for how many years? You know, 56 years. There yeah. No, no leaks at all until anthology. Then we finally got a little bit of stuff. Yeah. And some of this was actually in the hopper for possibly being in anthology. And they didn't think it was what they wanted to put out at that time. The Love You Too, that was in the list of songs that they might have put on <laughs> anthology too. No, wow. we don't want to do that now. We won't do it now. We'll wait 25 years <laughs> and we'll do it. 25 years later. Harrison's probably like, you're going to leave it off? What is that? Uh, 225,000 pounds? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh. Okay, so the, the road to Revolver uh, leads into a track-by-track. Track. It's very well done. It's kind of like Lewis and Extended. And yeah, I think that's a very good summary, Ed, of that it is like Mark Lewis and Extended of all the, the different recording details. Uh, it's a great, great reference. Very thorough. 
And they clearly draw from all different sources for the interviews. Of I'm going to wait till I get the vinyl because it's going to be a big book, right? Big book, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tape boxes, yeah. hand, handwritten lyrics, uh, all the usual goodies sweet. that we've now come to expect from these box sets. Uh, I'll read it a little bit better than I would the CD book. <laughs> <laughs> I have my magnifying glass otherwise. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's gonna be. Uh, I just can't. I cannot wait. Cannot wait for it. Right. Even online, yeah, I'm, I'm reading these notes, and I'm like, oh my god, so hard to see. Fortunately, with the PDF, you can always blow it up as large <laughs> as you want to. Yeah. Is it gonna be an audible? It would actually be nice if they did. Yeah, actually, I would take that. I do a lot of driving, and I know Ed drives a bit as well. After you go through each and every song, and notice that it is divided up into the sides as the tracks are in the order and they're numbered according to which side they are on. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, very nice. Mm -hmm. We can follow along, folks. And then Paperback, Rider, and Rain are described as uh, the two sides of the single. And then it ends with the artwork. The artwork is as important a part of this record as everything else. Yeah, I really appreciated that they spent that much time on the artwork. And as you said... It is so important, and I love that they included excerpts from the book that Klaus put out some years ago about the making of the album and the cover artwork. That was a nice surprise. And it was a strong cover, Klaus Vorman. Klaus did that, yeah. We'd always seen his drawings, and we always liked his style, and... Klaus, it turned out, had been a designer, and he had done a record sleeve, so talking to him... He said, oh, yeah, you know, I've done this before. We said, oh, wow, great, you must do our new one. So he just went away and came up with that drawing. Uh, I'm not sure how the idea came about, but it was like, would you see if you can come up with the cover? I'm not sure who asked him. John called me and said, uh, Klaus, do you have an idea? He asked me to come to the studio and listen to the tracks, and I was overwhelmed. It was so beautiful. Such fantastic music. Again, another step in a new direction. It was really mind-blowing, and at the same time, it was uh, groundbreaking. And that's what I was trying to capture on this cover. When I was finished with it, I went up to EMI. Yeah, but everybody came forward and they were saying, I like this picture. I said, oh, look, that's over there, and this and that. And everybody talked about it. And John came up and said, hey, Klaus, that's you. you. You put yourself on there, you cheeky bugger. Did <laughs> it? And uh, uh, Brian Epstein was standing in the back of the room and sobbing. He was crying. And I thought, what's wrong with him? You know, doesn't he like the cover? You know, I was really scared. So maybe he's, he's the manager. <laughs> he said, no, we, don't, we, can't take, we can't take this cover. But then he came forward to me and said, uh, Klaus, I was so scared that the people out there would not accept this incredible new music which is going so far ahead of what they are used to up to now but your cover builds that bridge and that made me happy uh, and i do think that there are still copies out there to get that's a lovely book and get klaus's signature while you can yeah he's not he's not a young man uh, as none of as none of our fellows here are that's true it is such a treat to see and he contributed such an essential part of course he played a huge part in the beatles story to begin with right but to really salute him for that cover that set the tone 
for the album. I mean, even before you know, you drop the needle on the record. <laughs> I'm just glad they spent that much space on it. It's a package deal. The album, and I remember when I bought the U.S. copy, mm-hmm. I'm glad they didn't change the cover just for the U.S. <laughs> it's the same. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, you know, listening to the album, the, the abridged album, U.S. version. And But I spent so much time looking at the cover. And it's like I Spy finding little photos in there. <laughs> right. and Paul noticed Hey, that's me on the toilet. <laughs> I had a little picture of John, uh, Paul sitting on the toilet on the cover. And then George, uh, George Martin came up and said, No, you can't do that, Klaus. <laughs> you, have to, you have to take it off. So eventually I had to take two photos. The other one was uh, Brian Epson with a piss pot on his head. And all the little pencil drawings and so forth. That was really cool. Oh, you can still always find a new detail in there. It's really cool. Do you have a copy of the Russian cover, which is totally different? Different photos. Of course, I guess none of that was approved. <laughs> no. Any <laughs> Beatles, but I have a copy of that, and it's pretty crazy. Most of those are a double album with the Revolver on one side and Pepper on the other. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's the two Russian covers, but it's packed as a double album. Yeah. Mm. And the quality is nowhere... Yeah, well, you don't, you don't listen to it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't put it on my turntable. <laughs> yeah. The one thing they didn't include in the box, which is floating around the internet, and people have done, is uh, they have isolated where all the photos came from. Oh yeah, I've seen that on the internet. I would have liked to have seen that in this book, I but agree. they didn't do that. That's the only thing that I think is missing. And then it ends with some thoughts on the reception of the record. You know, stuff which they've kind of borrowed from Bruce Spicer, I would say. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, good to have. I liked the explanation of the mono versus stereo. They did include that as well. And I liked that. You know, I found that useful for explaining, you know, why they recorded in mono. I mean, again, some of this isn't new, but I thought it was interesting discussing what they worked from to create the stereo mixes and even the remastered audio. And, you know, I appreciated that description and explanation. Well, I mean, you know, given the fact that they are including the mono in this box yeah they kind of have to do that yeah do you miss not having the original stereo mix in here i mean granted you can go out and buy it other places but for complete purposes i might have liked to have an extra disc with the original stereo mix on it here you know maybe for comparative purposes it would have been interesting to be able to have it right there and be able to compare that mix with the new mix i mean it would have been handy yeah but you know this package uh, was I'm assuming it's created for fans, and the fans are going to have that already. They put another CD in there, it's going to be another $30 more, (laughs) maybe from the price-wise. But but I'm I'm assuming that the fans all have the, the, the remastered, at least, you know. Well, I mean, that's, that may be why we don't have the capital yeah. I'm only sleeping anywhere in this box. I kind of would have liked to have had that in there somewhere, too. Yeah. I think that the three Lennon songs, you just have to go with what's on yesterday and today. And they do have lots of nice outtakes from the various Whitaker sessions around yesterday and today in this box. Mm-hmm. I thought that was nice. Well, you know, I just have weird feelings about that time because what was being played on the radio and getting yesterday and today 
with the Lennon songs, along with the progressive songs from Rubber Soul, Nowhere Man. It was just kind of a a weird feeling uh, going into Revolver because you'd already kind of heard kind of where they were headed. Those songs were there. It was so confusing. I, I didn't actually purchase Revolver, the U.S. version, and until probably 1973. I eventually got that box set in 1980, you know, that blue box set with all the UK. And I saw the extra songs on there. I'm thinking, why are they putting songs from yesterday in the day on Revolver? (laughs) That was even more confusing to me. And of course, shortly after I read, that's how the Beatles wanted to be presented. I just felt like, wow. (laughs) So in a way, my whole fandom up to that point just kind of got twisted. Exactly. I loved Beatles 6. Yeah. <laughs> I love that album. And yet... That was a good one. Completely made up. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Dave Dexter. <laughs> you yeah. guys went through yeah. some That's serious uh, stuff. We were just traumatized. Like, <laughs> I can tell. I mean, they're, like, you're still feeling the residual effects. It's like, well, it's true. You grew up with Beatles 65 and Beatles 6, and and you had all these things. And then when all of a sudden the British versions became available, it was like, wow. I mean, Hard Day's Night. It had a second side. It didn't have all the all right. you know, movie yeah, music. Yeah, that took a while to get used to. I agree. So, yeah, well, the fact that, like, help. Yeah. I, I just can't listen to the help, the UK help. Yeah. I've, I've got to hear my right. U.S. with all the soundtrack stuff in there. Yep. <laughs> or yesterday being yeah. on, on help is confusing. Okay, we need to yeah. form a support group, I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about time. Oh, my God. We're, we're the abused. <laughs> the American fans who haven't gotten over it. Well, as, as, John, as John has frequently said, quoting National Lampoon, Beatlemania is not pretty. <laughs> No, you know, they need to make it into a progressive Uh, commercial. (laughs) Because somehow they can tie it in with insurance. (laughs) Right? So would it be called Dexteritis? All right, so we only got two shows, so let's go ahead. We've been through the book. Let's go on to the EP, which is one of the more controversial things about this set. We got a disc which has Paperback Rider and Rain, both the new mix and the mono, together. In vinyl, it's okay. In CD, it seems a little bit wasteful to me. They have a full CD with only the four songs on it. Well, I can't figure out why they had to create that CD and not put some sort of outtakes from Good Day Sunshine. It's like the one song yep. they left off. Or, or even not just outtakes, just pull some of the isolated piano or... Isolate the lyrics there or you the, go. the vocals. Good day sunshine Good day sunshine Good day sunshine I need to laugh And when the sun is out I've got something I can laugh about. I feel good in a special way. I'm in love and it's a sunny day. Uh, the fact that it was completely left off is, is perplexing. Yeah. Waste of a digital surface. I agree. But I guess it's meant to be the counterpart to the vinyl single. That's kind of what I've been saying for a couple of weeks now is that starting with the Let It Be box, the vinyl has 
taken predominance as the version that they want everything to be modeled after. And the CD is just kind of, eh, okay, we'll do one because people will still buy it. And some people, like Lonnie and myself, will buy both. <laughs> and the thing is, the EP works on vinyl. Because you could argue, well, it's kind of a collector's item. And the format works. But I mean, on CD, I'm sorry. That is not equivalent. <laughs> not at all. And as you have all been saying, you've got the space on CD. To, you could put other stuff on there. And it's just wasteful. You know, it would have been nice to hear... Maureen Cleves interview. Oh with yeah, John. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess those tapes still exist. Mm-hmm. There you go. That would have been interesting. There's a way to flesh it out, or maybe re- remix or somehow enhance a concert from '66 tour, Budokan. You know, no, I mean, no, no, not Budokan. <laughs> not Budokan. <laughs> Give us one of the Germany shows. Oh, the- that's right. That's they're a lot. Yeah, it's a lot better playing there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> had better mics <laughs> Sennheisers <laughs> so okay now on to the music which is presumably why we're all here oh yeah that, <laughs> that paperback writer mix oh my goodness you know we've now had what I would say are three definitive stereo paperback writer mixes we had the one from one we had the original and now we have this one this one blows them all away paperback I agree. It's tight. The bass is there. The drums are there. The guitar is just that edge on it. You can hear it. It's a new mix. Sounds like a new group. You're listening to the Beatles at whatever age they were, and it sounds like they're just happening now. Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous. And as I will be saying as we go through the record track by track, for the first time, you can genuinely hear the inflection in each of their voices. Mm-hmm. You know, as they're yes. singing, either in the old stereo where they would be squashed together or in the mono where it's certainly all together, you can't really hear the emotion that they're putting into the way that they're singing, not the way you can hear. Yeah, that's what I meant about their youth. You hear their youth, how young they were and yeah. their, their tonage. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Ed, and, and just the, the sound is, wow, it's incredible. Yeah, the enthusiasm in the playing is there on the tape. And you're going to hear me say this a lot in this discussion. For the most part, there are just a couple of times that we'll get to where the stereo mixes didn't work quite as well for me. But for the most part, these mixes just make these songs and and paperback writer being among them just sound fresh like they could have been recorded now it almost is like they took a lens and then just tightened the focus they didn't do anything super drastic because i mean you don't want to tamper with the mixes too much and i don't think they did but they did enough as you said ed you can really hear the clarity of the voices more yeah the bass the drums i mean it just kicks and clarity of the guitars, it just absolutely blows you away. Well, I think it really has yes. modernized it because we as listeners over the years have evolved into, we listen for different things now. And this music has been yep. brought right up to date. It's 
Totally relatable. Agreed. You know, we talk about the drums. You can hear the cymbals and the toms and the kicks separately. I mean, you can really appreciate just how good the demixing technology actually is. It's hard for me to believe almost listening to this version of the record that those were all glued together on one piece of tape. So true. <laughs> and, you know, should we go back and remix Sgt. Pepper now? That's one of the points they make in the book, that on Revolver, you're still recording everything onto one track of one piece of tape. On Pepper, they did just keep bouncing it down and bouncing it down and bouncing it down. So Giles had all the isolated tracks yeah. on Pepper. Yeah, although I don't think that all the tracks were isolated. I mean, there still were things that were put down on the same track. Perhaps in some instances. But for the most part, you had the equivalent of 30 to 40 tracks. You know, they were doing eight or nine bounce downs. Yeah. I mean, basically, all Lonnie's saying is that they have a project to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) For the 100th anniversary, they will be able to... They'll, they'll do so that we've got to right. have the hologram, you know, Beatles in your living room at some point. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then we haven't even talked about rain. Yep. Transcendent. Rain was the song that really, uh, that's when I became totally hooked. I mean, I had been a fan, but now I became a zealot. And hearing this was just like, oh my God, it's the music <laughs> of the gods. Yep. We haven't gotten the Atmos mix. I'm chopping at the bit to hear the Atmos mix of Rain. Everything has been isolated. It, it and, and even in the stereo, it sounds so great. Is this going to be available on the CD? It's going to be streaming through the streaming services on release date. Oh, so I have to buy the earbuds that are... Yeah, yeah, you'll yeah. two hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll uh, you'll have to buy either the. Uh, I think the lower grade AirPods will indeed do the spatial audio now. Oh, but, thank uh, goodness! <laughs> so I'm good. <laughs> you need to get a new pair if you have an old pair. Mm-hmm. Oh It my needs God. to be the current one to work with the spatial audio. Mm-hmm. But you got to have Apple Music streaming. Yeah, exactly. So that's okay, a that's a I'm service you have to purchase, you know. Well, I mean, you know, for, for for a couple of months, but uh, so <laughs> anyway, we're very happy with rain. It may sound a little bit less psychedelic to me, but I mean that may just be the way it's put together. I, I don't know. It, it has this shimmer to it. It's very delicious. It's still a very sensory experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I do like, as with many of the other tracks uh, we'll talk about, they've really made Ringo's drums sound even fuller, crisper. Really, really love that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, so we spent an hour here, almost an hour here, talking about 
everything else. Uh, <laughs> we will be back next week, or actually probably sooner, if I can get to it sooner, to talk about remix on the album and the mono. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Be safe, folks. Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. Did you always have the idea of really using their eyes or were you going to draw the eyes and somehow it came later? I'll use their real eyes because that is scary as to an eight year old child. <laughs> like, what the hell? But you're not the only one. I met quite a few people that were scared of Georgie's face. You know, anybody? When you first got it, were you scared? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is interesting because I had a hard time. I get got the likeness of John that was easy, that nose and those those nostrils and those almond-shaped eyes. That was easy, you know. And Paul's profile was good and Ringo looking up. I made him look up because his nose was so big. <laughs> nice, very, very respectful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, George was really, really tough. George is a beautiful looking guy, but to draw his face is murder. I tried and tried. And a particular style of just doing it in lines. Yes. Very, very, very difficult. And then I got a magazine. And that magazine about pictures of the Beatles, nice and big, you know, like the foreheads next to each other like that, you know. Yeah. So I took that photo of George and cut out the eyes and stuck it on the cover. First, I wanted to see if it works. And I looked at it and said, oh, yeah, that's it. Just the eyes and the mouth, and it worked. And I was happy with it. Well, they, they must have been stunned by that. They must have, John, John must have loved yes, that. Yes, I was amazed because nobody explained about anything apart from those two photos. Right. Uh, everybody accepted the cover and, and, uh, and nobody, you see, I thought maybe they think, yeah, you can't do that, black and white, and nothing, nothing. Everybody loved it and they knew. You see, the Beatles were trendsetters. Every time they did something, they went a step forward, always. And this was a big step forward. And that's what made them so great. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.